Seltzer Kings podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why? Why would I make Brett the new managing executive producer, Gavin? Why? This is why. Hey there, Dave Bledsoe. What's it like in New York City? I'm a thousand miles away, but dude, your podcast isn't that shitty, can't you see? It gets me through the workday and motivates me. Bunny takes on current events and nostalgic remember when. You have never written a song for me once. The following podcast contains. Ah, oh, the f- you do that for? Hey, that was. Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swearwolves. Explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you decide an affordable, compact, friendly, family friendly, improvised explosive device and called it a car, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 386, Family in the Front, Bomb in the Back edition of the show, where we talk about that time Ford decided that Americans really wanted a car that explodes when lightly tapped, and they made the Ford Pinto. Stay tuned. What the hell were you thinking podcast is brought to you by a used Yugo. Yes, it is an ugly little car that everyone laughs at you for driving, but it doesn't explode. If you're in the market for a laughable car with a woefully underpowered engine, terrible aesthetics, and the only enough room inside for one moderately sized human being, why not pick a used Yugo? In today's used car market, finding anything, much less anything good, it's tough. So why not go for a rusted out joke of a car made in the former Yugoslavia 40 years ago? Sure, it runs like shit, but it ran like shit when it was new. And that's the kind of consistent quality you can't find in more modern used cars. A used Yugo. Is it a bad choice for your used car needs? Yes. But at least it doesn't explode when you look at it funny. Hopefully. Meet the Pinto. Just born. Pinto. The new little carefree car from Ford. Priced like a small economy import, but you'd never know to look at it. It's averaged over 25 miles per gallon in simulated city and suburban driving. But it's frisky, with a wider stance than any little import, so you won't be pushed around by the wind. With high-backed bucket seats in front and comfortable room all around. And Pinto Strong, built to run and run and run. With little servicing, little noise, little expense. Pinto, a little carefree car to put a little kick in your life. A little better idea from Ford, coming September 11th. I have not owned a car for over 20 years now. Fifth DUI? No, no, I've never had a DUI. Look, I was a cop back when I was drinking and driving, so I had to get out of jail free card. You probably suck somebody's dick. No, no, it's actually much worse than that because 
all those things you think cops do to cover up for other cops doing crimes, that's actually true. But that's not what this show's about. It's about cars. Now, the last car I ever had was a 2000 Pontiac Sunfire. The Pontiac Sunfire Coupe now comes with a new five-speed drag transmission, 15-inch wheels, and a six-speaker CD stereo. The Pontiac Sunfire 2000 value package with a ton of extra features and 1.9% purchase financing. Pontiac Sunfire, built for drivers. Which was a perfectly serviceable little car. It was kind of sporty, but not so sporty. It made you look like the kind of douchebag who buys a car because he thinks it'll help him get laid. Now, I'd already made that mistake when I bought a 1983 Ford Mustang, red, of course. It was my dream car. Well, technically, the 64 Mustang convertible in cherry red was my dream car, but I was on a limited budget. And it didn't help that I bought the car from a, for an absurdly small price at one of those shady car dealerships that line the highways outside military bases. And my dream car... Well, it was a hunk of crap. Not only did it not help me get laid, it was constantly breaking down. And one time when I was driving back from San Antonio to Arkansas, the transmission went out 100 miles from home and I had to limp home for 100 miles in first gear. Now, the best car I ever owned was a 1994 Chevy Cavalier. And that was a car that was neither fancy, nor did it make me inherently fuckable. It's not about owning a $40,000 car. It's about owning a good car. It's not how much something costs that matters to me. It's how well it works. That car was the best money on cars I ever spent. It drove well, was reliable as hell, because I was not what one would call diligent with things like routine maintenance. And it was affordable. That Cavalier was the only new car I ever owned and probably the only new car I will ever own. Because, uh, spoiler alert, podcasting does not make new car money. Podcasting does not make for bus fare money. You're poor as shit. What am I supposed to Still, I remember driving off the lot the day I bought it and how it felt to have something that no one else had used and abused and how I knew that I could use and abuse it all by myself. And by God, that's what I did. I beat the shit out of that car for almost a decade. And then when it was about to fall apart, I traded it in for that Pontiac Sunfire, which I would go on to have repossessed about 14 months later. Yeah, because you make bad choices. So very many of them. I'm not a car guy. But you know, I am enough of a car guy to know that I want a car that does not explode in a minor traffic collision. That sounds reasonable. Which brings me to this week's topic, the Ford Pinto. probably think you know the story of the Ford Pinto, um, how they would explode if they were rear-ended during a traffic accident, and how some dude named Ralph Nader told America that they were exploding death traps, but you would be wrong because Ralph Nader did not tell you about the Ford Pinto. He told you about the Chevy Corvair. Was it a Chevy? I don't fucking know cars. That's far from all that actually happened, and the entire story is fucking wild. So let's climb under the open hatchback of a Ford Pinto and right off into the story. As the 1960s began to wind down, Detroit was still the preeminent automotive manufacturer for the entire world. 
And that meant cars were large, somewhat inefficient. We covered all of that in episode number 349, Gas, Gas, or Gas, No One Rides for Free, when we talked about the gas crisis. Plug it in, plug it in. Still, even before the oil crisis, people were already looking at small imports from Germany and Japan for the uh, lower cost and increased gas mileage. The premier compact car of the 1960s was the Volkswagen Beetle, the cutest little car fascism ever created. Nazis, Nazis, hello. The VW Bug became a hit with young people buying their first car. According to Motor Trend, quote, it wasn't until automotive importer extraordinaire Max Hoffman won the contract for exclusive distribution east of the Mississippi River when the popularity of the Beetle began to take off. By the mid-1950s, 35,000 Beetles had been sold in the States, ballooning to 300,000 in 1960. The rest, of course, is history, unquote. And along with this, increasing number of Japanese imports began eating into the numbers of Detroit in the compact car market. So the decision was made to create a subcompact American car that would compete directly against these imports. At Ford, in the 1967 planning committee, began to design oh, just such a car. Ford President Lee Iacocca, who would go on to become a bit of a meme in the 1980s. It's a book about management, and Lee Iacocca says it. And he had a specific vision for this car, and also pushed the design and development phase to rush the car to market. And that nearly halved the amount of time it usually took to go from drawing board to full production. I'm sure everything will be fine. In a journal article by Marilyn M. Helms, Betty H. Hutchman Management Decision, the author writes, quote, When a decision was made to produce the Pinto... It was given the shortest production planning and schedule in history. Tooling went on at the same time as the product development. So when the testing revealed serious defect for the gas tank, the $200 million Pinto machines were almost already completely built. The directive came from the top. President Lee Iacocca, who emphasized that the Pinto was not to weigh an ounce over 2,000 pounds and not cost a cent over $2,000, and that safety was not a priority because safety doesn't sell, unquote. So Iacocca got his fast production, when what became known as Lee's car arrived on dealer's lots on September 11th, 1970. Jesus, talk about foreshadowing. The two-door sedan 1974 Pinto was base priced at $1,850. It's about fourteen dollars today. Undercutting GM Chevy Vega and directly targeting the import models such as the Mazda 1200 in 1971, the Subaru DL in 1972, and the Honda Civic in 1973. It was a small, bubble-shaped car with a long front and a snub back end even before the hatchback hit the market. It wasn't luxurious, didn't handle particularly well, and was considered noisy on the road, and didn't have particularly great performance. In short, it was exactly what every other economy subcompact on the market was and quickly became extremely popular because Americans bought American cars, goddammit, and that's just how things were back in the 1970s. God bless America. Now, I wondered what people thought at the time, so I went searching for a contemporary review of the car, and I found this from Car and Driver as part of a head-to-head against, Chevy, against a similar car by Chevy, the Vega. And this is what Car and Driver said in 1971. Quote, While both can be used for general transportation, each has its specialty, the Pinto is exceptionally satisfying, even amusing, as a city traffic car. It's highly maneuverable. Visibility is extremely good in every direction except towards the rear corners, and it has the sharp edge ghost stop turn feel of a sports car. The Pinto, to Ford's eternal embarrassment, had a serious defect built in at the factory, and it didn't take once around the block to know that something was wrong. It moved like it was tied to a Fryhoff engine. 
engine idle was unsteady. Throttle responses was no more predictable than a Supreme Court decision, and there was a general reluctance to start. Finally, we interested Ford Engineering in the case, and it was discovered that the camshaft had been installed incorrectly, unquote. This was uh, not the only problem that was in the Ford Pinto, though this poor performance would lead to the discovery of the rather larger problem with it, and that problem, indeed, was much, much larger. It's one way to put it. In 1972, a woman named Lily Gray and her passenger, 13-year-old Richard Grimshaw, were merging onto the freeway in Orange County, California, in her 1974 Pinto, when the Pinto suddenly stalled. As Gray tried to get the car started, a car came up behind her and struck her Pinto in the rear at about 30 miles an hour. In a different car, this would have been a very survivable crash. But what happened in this case was the Pinto's gas tank, mounted just behind the rear axles as a design compromise, was pushed forward and into the passenger compartment spewing liquid gasoline and fumes from the tank all over the driver and passenger. And since both cars were still very much in motion as this was happening, that meant large chunks of metal were grinding on concrete, producing, you guessed it, big-ass sparks. And when those sparks connected with the fuel vapor now filling the passenger compartment of the Pinto, well, you get... Bada-boom. Big. Big bada-boom. Big. Bada-big-boom. Big yeah. boom. Yeah, big bada boom. Bada boom. <laughs> big bada. boom, big bada boom. Mm. That was probably in bad taste. Gray, the driver, died and injuries sustained in the crash, and her passenger Grimshaw suffered severe permanently disfiguring burns to his entire body. Grimshaw underwent numerous skin grafts and extensive surgery, but still lost portions of the fingers of his left hand and his left ear in the accident. There were other incidents. In Indiana, three teenage girls were killed when their Pinto was rear-ended and exploded. 27 other fatalities could all be directly attributed to the barbecue that seats four, as the joke went at the time. As you might expect, there was a lawsuit. There were a lot of lawsuits. As you might expect, Ford lost that lawsuit when the plaintiff provided some rather damning facts. The American Museum of Tort Law sums them up thusly. Quote, Internal company documents show that Ford secretly crash-tested the Pinto more than 40 times before it went on the market and that the fuel Pinto's fuel tank ruptured in every test performed at speeds over 25 miles an hour. This rupture created a risk of fire. Ford engineers considered numerous solutions to the fuel tank problem, including lining the tank with a nylon bladder at the cost of $5.25 to $8 per vehicle, adding structural protection to the rear of the car at the, at the cost of $4.20 per vehicle, or and, and or adding a plastic baffle between the fuel tank and the differential housing at the cost of $1 per vehicle. None of these protected devices were used. Adding to the pressure to ignore these safety costs was Lee Iacocca's stated goal that the Pinto was not to weigh an ounce over 2,000 pounds and not cost a cent over $2,000. So even when a crash test showed that a one-pound, one-dollar piece of plastic prevented the gas tank from being punctured, the alternative was thrown out as extra cost and extra weight, unquote. And what is perhaps the most damning was how Ford decided to deal with the problem of their four-wheel of their four-wheel fireplace because they uh, they uh, you know I ran the numbers, crunched the uh, math, and and arrived at a pretty straightforward conclusion. Let it burn. As 
I noted above, Ford had done the safety test. They knew the tanks would blow and cause a fire, so instead of fixing the problem, they did what capitalists do. Have a stage of coup d'etat? No. In this case, they, they ran a cost-benefit analysis to see which would cost more money, fixing the problem or paying the lawsuits when people died. You made that up. I wish I did, but I did not. Quoting now from Wikipedia, quote, 1973, Ford's Environmental and Safety Engineering Division developed a cost-benefit analysis entitled Fatalities Associated with Crash-Induced Fuel Leakage and Fires for submission to NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, in support of Ford's objection to propose stronger fuel system regulation. Pause for a minute to consider that. That they submitted this cost-benefit analysis to convince the government not to increase safety standards. The document has become known as the Grush Soundby Report, named for its authors, and also as the Pinto Memo, unquote. The study had some rather simplistic, if brutal, math. Assuming the total amount of Pintos sold to be uh, $11 million, you could probabilistically predict 2,100 accidents resulting in 180 deaths by gasoline tank explosion over the life of the product line. At the time that this report was made, correcting the problem would now require a product recall, and those are very expensive and very bad for business. I included a link to the exact text in the show notes, but I'm just going to sum it up here. The cost of recalling the Pinto would have been about $121 million, whereas paying off the victims would have only cost Ford $50 million. The Pinto continued into production, there was no recall, and thus we managed to answer the age-old question, what is the value of a human life? Well, according to this analysis by the Ford Motor Company, slightly less than $11 a car. The amount that it would have taken to simply add the safety measures that would have prevented the deaths in the first place. Get Needless to say, when this memo came out during the trial, Richard Grimshaw got paid. A Washington Post article from 1978 said, quote, An Orange County Superior Court has ordered Ford Photo Company to pay $127.8 million in damages to a teenager who suffered severe burns over 95% of his body when the gas tank of a 1972 Pinto exploded. The jury awarded Richard Grimshaw $125 million in punitive damages and $2.841 million in compensatory damages for injuries he suffered in a May 1972 accident. This is probably the loudest noise that a jury has made in any civil suit in American jurisprudence, Mark P. Robertson, attorney for Grimshaw, said after Monday's verdict. He expected Ford to, uh, to appeal, unquote. Appeal, they did, and in that case, the appeals court sided with the trial court on the facts of the case that Ford was willingly and knowingly negligent, resulting in the death and damages, but they did reduce the punitive damage to a mere $3.5 million dollars, which was still five times larger than any other previous damage awarded at the time. By the way, Ford made $466 million in profit the year of the lawsuit. So, you know, they were fine. Now, if you're the sort of person who likes to dig around nostalgic dinks for the 70s and 80s, or you've heard a podcast, you might have heard that this, this was all debunked, that the Ford Pinto's reputation for bursting into flames at the slightest tap on the rear is wildly overblown if not downright fabricated. Hey, if you're a certain age, you might even remember the scene from the movie Top Secret where the Nazis are in a shootout with the heroes and they barely brush the bumper of a Pinto and suddenly they all explode? <laughs> Funny! 
if you don't think about the 27 people who actually died because of Ford's little cost-saving message, a message to uh, save Leah Iacocca's ego. And you know, you'd be correct, because a UCLA law professor did the math and proved conclusively that the Ford Pinto did not deserve its reputation as a firebomb on wheels, and he did this back in 1991. Quoting now from the myth of the Ford Pinto case by Professor Gary T. Schwartz, quote, It is now time to sum up. The strong claim that the Pinto was a fire trap entails a misconception. To be sure, the Pinto did contain design problems that was non-trivial and to some extent distinctive. Even so, the number of fatalities that resulted from the design problem is a minor fraction of the fatality estimates relied upon by those who present the fire trap characterization. Moreover, when all the vehicle fire fatalities are considered, the Pinto turns out to have been less dangerous than the average subcompact and only slightly more dangerous than the average car. Indeed, when occupant fatalities from all the highway safety and highway causes are considered, the Pinto performed respectively. Yet, even if the general portrayal of the Pinto as a fire trap should be rejected as false, a limited core of the fire trap myth seems fair enough. The Pinto's record in rear end fatalities was not only much worse than all car fatalities, it was apparently somewhat worse than the record than the record of most, though not all, of its subcompact competitors, unquote. I read through the paper, and the gist of his argument seems to me that, yes, Ford cut some corners and made some bad decisions, but no more than almost everyone else was doing. And while it appears that Ford made rather cold calculation calculation that 11 bucks is just too much to spend to save even one human life, well... That was just logical, since the kind of accidents that might cause the design flaw to suddenly render a human being into a charcoal briquette was relatively rare. And really, if you want to blame anyone, you should blame the media that, that made the public assume that just because a massive corporation willingly chose to spend less money on a safety feature that could save lives, that said corporation didn't exactly have their best interests at heart. People were foolish in the extreme to believe a myth based on a few television news reports, and we should be ashamed of ourselves for being so foolish. Which, yeah, okay, I know I say the same thing all the time about, like, whatever the media fucking panic du jour is. But to be fair, we have the documents where Ford literally said that it was cheaper for people to die and pay out the lawsuit claims than to fix the fucking issue. Details, mere details. We shouldn't worry about that. I don't know. I, I tried to dip into Professor Schwartz's uh, online presence and his jurisprudence. I mean, the guy died in 2001, but he published a lot of articles. But it seemed to me that he was a little sympathetic to big business, but I don't fucking know. I'm not a researcher, and I'm definitely not a lawyer. I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. The Pinto fell well short of its anticipated production run of 11 million cars. Just over three of them, three million of them produced, largely due to the public believing that the Pinto would explode if you breathed on the bumper. They became a punchline and for the model of corporate malfeasance for the better part of the 1970s. But as Ford pointed out at the time, they met or exceeded all federally mandated state safety standards from the era. That there even were federal safety standards came out because Ralph Nader's expose on the flaws of the Chevy Corvair. And after the Pinto debacle, those standards were actually increased over the next decades. And this was during the Reagan administration. He said it! He said it! When the GOP was actually gutting government regulations left and right, they largely left auto safety alone and actually let it improve. 
There were 52,000 motor vehicle deaths in 1970, the year that the Pinto hit to market. And they stayed around that number until 1992, when they dropped for the first time to under 40,000. And have steadily crept down through the, until 2010s, when they bottomed out at around 32,000 a year. But hey, they've crept back in 2021 with nearly 43,000 a year. And yeah, those numbers look bad, but you got to take into account a population increase over the 50 years. From 1979 to 2005, the number of deaths per year decreased almost 15%, while the number of deaths per capita decreased by almost 36%. And you can thank government safety regulations for much of this. So the next time someone asks you, what is the government good for? You throw that statistic in their smug fucking faces. You know, the Ford Pinto wasn't even a particularly egregious piece of capitalism. There were and are far worse things in the history of capitalism. I mean, s- slavery, for one. The reason we remember it this today, if we do remember it, is largely because of the media and pop culture reaction to what Ford was doing. Because people believed in what was admittedly a myth about the car being so unsafe it would blow up if you brushed it with your hip. Ford was forced to do something to pro- about the problem. Namely, recall and fix millions of cars at great cost to a company already struggling with a bad economy and superior imported vehicles. The Pinto didn't kill American car manufacturing, but it was a symptom of the fuck it all, make more money, damn the cost disease that was in all the big car companies, from which a disease from which they've never truly recovered. They blamed labor, but it was head capitalist in charge motherfuckers like Lee fucking Iacocca that blew up the car companies like a Pinto in a slow speed collision. Then politicians like Reagan came along, danced in the ashes, and blamed not capitalism, but labor and foreign competition, rather than the inherent flaws introduced by unchecked greed. And not a damn thing has really changed today. (laughs) No, admittedly, the things today that are burning down from a slow-speed, easily foreseeable, ego-driven clusterfuck decision are hardly life and death. I mean, no one's going to die because Elon bought Twitter. I mean, well, maybe democracy, but... That was probably going to happen anyway. But hey, just like they made the barbecue that seeds for jokes back then, we can make jokes now about Elon burning down companies that he paid $44 billion, like a, I don't know, a, a Tesla battery fire that completely consumes a car and leaves a slag heap full of toxic garbage. Which, admittedly, can easily describe Twitter for as long as it's existed. That is it for our show this week. Hey, look at us, not needing to break format to lament the downfall of democracy because of a bad election. Good job, pod friends. Keep up that good work. This week's topic is one that's been in the hopper for a good long while because the answers are both straightforward, capitalism is bad, and complicated, Because, uh, you know, the Pinto wasn't exactly a rolling Molotov cocktail like we all thought at the time. So I had to decide decide which way I wanted to go, media bad or capitalism bad. And I went with both. I always do when it's got faced with that kind of choice. I always go with capitalism being the bigger dick, though, because it always is. Now, speaking of bad choices, rate and review this podcast wherever you get your pods. That help makes it easier for people to find us, take a listen, and review the bad choice they've made. The holidays are coming up, so why not buy yourself or someone you loathe a shirt featuring my half-naked ass eating a can of pinto beans on the toilet. Head on over to SeltzKings.com and click on the merch, and you'll see what it is all about, and you should buy one. Why would anyone do that to themselves?
I got one. Why wouldn't you? It's fucking awesome. If you want to kick us a buck for stuff, head over to patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. You can help us out. Now, you all best do what the stuff that Jeremy's about to tell you to do in the closing credits because otherwise he will be forced to gently brush the rear bumper of your car and maybe set off your car alarm. Uh, he wouldn't really do that because he's a nice guy. And so for me, Dave, rowing in my pinto, dodging the po-po, Bledsoe, producer. No, no, I refuse to say these lyrics. I will quit, but Gavin and all the fictional homies rolling in their pentos, we want to say, fuck a booming system. I got AM radio. I can listen to the news while I get fellatio. And we'll see you all next week. I'm rolling in my pinto, dodging a popo. My tags are outdated and the weed made me sedated. And fuck a booming system, I got AM radio. So I can hear the news while I'm getting fellatio. Just hope she sweats me until the end. Cause I'm about to hit 30 around this bend. Rolling in my pinto. Rockin' what the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. That's the combat seat, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.